The end of the year is fast approaching, and this year the Coot Street Podcast is doing something a little different. We're inviting 24 creators of some of these year's best and most interesting books to join us for 10 minutes or so to talk about what they're reading now, their favorite holiday reads, and what they're coming out in the year ahead if they do. It's a Coot Street advent calendar if that's your thing, or just a run-up to the holidays for book lovers. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Guy Gavriel Kay. Hi, Guy. Hi, Jonathan. It's good to be speaking with you. It's always wonderful to be speaking with you. How are you? How is life treating you at the moment? Uh, I'm fine, Jonathan. We are entering winter, as Australians have come to acknowledge happens to those in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, right now, looking out the window, the snow has gone. So that's, that's rewarding. We missed a colossal snowfall that hit... Mm-hmm south of us in upstate New York, and they had, I'm not making this up, uh, six feet of snow fell, six feet of snow fell in Buffalo, uh, and those of us in Toronto were were happily uh, chortling at the point <laughs> Ontario offered us. But I'm fine, the family's fine, and... Uh, and we're not looking forward to the winter, but Canadians are always capable of dealing with the winter. Well, does the winter contribute to your holiday spirit and feeling for the end of the year? The end of the year celebrations have been compromised for the last two years so much by uh, our all living in COVID times. And I think so many people are so exhausted and worn out by that feeling. Uh, We tend to do the end of the year with two or three couples at someone's home and shared food, and I tend to be assigned the cocktail making, and for some reason or other. And uh, that's our usual celebration at this stage. So as it gets colder and you're staying indoors more, do you find yourself reading more at the moment? And is there anything that's been particularly good of late? Reading materials? Yeah, yeah. The, I don't tend to read seasonally. I actually have a, a mini rant. As you know, I'm good at mini ranting. But uh, about... Uh, People talking about beach read, airplane read, holiday read, uh, any good book Mm -hmm. that engages and engrosses you can be read in the depths of winter and lying on a beach. The preferences for what we like to read will be widely varied, will be widely varying from person to person. That's a given about anything in the arts. But I don't customize my reading to the (laughs) season or the time. Fair enough. Have you read anything particularly good lately or anything that you'd recommend? Well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a key contrarian again in terms of what I read. Uh, I fall into the category of those people who, when the Nobel Prize for Literature is announced, if I haven't read them, mm. I read them. Yeah. 
usually go out looking for a book by the newest Nobel laureate. And this year it was Annie Arnaud of France, won the Nobel mm-hmm. And so I went out and bought what quick research told me was a lot of people's thinking her best book, which is called The Years. Mm-hmm. And it's outstanding. Okay. Genuinely outstanding. It's not a book I have been promiscuously recommending because it's chilly, Jonathan. Maybe yeah. that's that after all towards winter reading or away from winter reading. It's mm-hmm. chilly, astringent, judgmental even. She's chronicling in a remarkably distinctive voice, her life and the lives of her generation, which are a little older than us. She's born in 1940. But by the time she gets to the later 60s, our generation are on the scene. Mm -hmm. We are experiencing what she's chronicling. And the dovetailing of her personal growing up in provincial France, a child of poverty, Mm-hmm. Uh, and the events that she grew up through, that all of us grew up through, the dovetailing of those two things is extraordinary. It's, yeah. it's a genuinely impressive short book. It's about turning 20 pages, and it's, I'm told it's her longest book. <laughs> I'm very jealous of that. I can't write. <laughs> well, and you know most recent yeah uh, really impressive discovery yeah i mean it doesn't sound like it's almost long enough to get a nobel at 200 pages it feels like it should be more but she's been doing this for a very long time yeah and i think she's been given the nobel i think this is reckless to say as a recognition of a distinctive voice and a distinctively sure. feminist voice yes emerging from a time when that was not normative. She's chronicling the lives of women in France from the post-war period through to the 21st century and the edges of it. And the migration of the lives of everyone and specifically the lives of women. And she does it in a condensed, focused, unsparing way. She's harsh on herself and she's harsh on her peers. Yeah. She's surprisingly gentle mm-hmm. about her children's generation. Yeah. She she's open and tolerant and curious about younger people. It's 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 yeah. an extraordinary book. It sounds it. It sounds it. All the years in English. Yeah. I know your reading for various reasons goes in cycles. Are you yet in a research reading phase, or is it still mostly for pleasure? That's a good question. The short answer is that I have migrated to what I've been calling for years my brood and swear mode. Uh, Some friends will say, so what's different from your normal mode? (laughs) But... uh, as I think you know, I never know what the next book is when I finish yes. one, I've released one. Uh, that's just me. 
I don't lay them out in any sort yes. of semi-line of what I'm going to do next. So right now, as we're talking, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I'm reading widely mm-hmm. and variously uh, history and nonfiction for the most part, almost exclusively nonfiction, in diverse periods, yeah. trying to zero in on something that ignites my interest. I don't like the word inspires. I think inspires mm-hmm. pop out. I don't feel inspired today. I think I'll drink some whiskey. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's too easy. <laughs> well, <laughs> it sounds like you, even though you don't know what you're doing next, you have a confidence in the process you're following that it will lead you to where you need to go. That's that's shrewdly observed, but probably gives me too much credit. <laughs> Which is to say that even now, well into my sixties, I'm never confident. Yeah. I'm never sure. Yeah. That I have not written my last coherent, cogent, moving, interesting piece of fiction that what yeah. comes next will be semicolons and seafood recipes. And, uh, well, several years ago, you were engaged in a research phase that did lead to something that was coherent and cogent and moving, all the seas of the world, which came out earlier this year. Let me ask you, how do you feel about it now it, with it having been out for... 10 months? It's it's a good question again, because authors are all over the spectrum, I think, in terms of going back to or thinking back to finished work. Some of us need to say, okay, that's done. What do I do next? And others are still preoccupied with the themes mm-hmm. and motifs of the yeah. last I try to get, if I could put it this way, unpreoccupied. <laughs> yeah. I want the last book to bleed into the next book too much sure. yeah. in terms of motifs. Uh, I'm very proud of all the seas of the world. Uh, I wanted to work in the same general setting, which is a renaissance near Europe <laughs> that I had done twice before and two previous preceding. But I wanted to pick up on different aspects of it, different themes, different kinds of protagonists that I had in the past. Uh, Shift the focus a little bit. It's one of the reasons why a couple of the secondary characters Mm. have been in earlier books. Yes. And... For me, that is part of the shifting the focus. You know, you had a microscope or a telescope and you turn the focus knob. Yeah. And different people, different kinds of story come into focus. And people from earlier works are on the scene, not centered. And that, I'm going to make a bad pun, sharpens the (laughs) focus. When you do it that way, that's one of the reasons yeah. I do it that way. So I'm very proud of the book. Uh, it's 
almost certainly, you could probably blackmail me with this tape now, the last time I'm going to do this particular set of yeah. characters in specific setting, but don't quote me on that. Don't put this on <laughs> I guess you can put this on air, aren't you? In some ways, that will be bittersweet because particularly it feels the main protagonists of all the seas of the world are amongst your most rounded characters that I've encountered, I think. I think there is a real depth of emotion. I certainly was stirred by it and found myself both laughing at times. I found myself weeping at times. It's quite a remarkable book. Um, do you recall where it started? Where it started? Hmm. Every book has multiple hmm. starting points for me. I can point to uh, some things that are part of the genesis, yeah. but I can't point to a single thing sure. because they accumulate. Once I'm starting to zero in on themes and setting, different things come up. This book, one of the origins is uh, a book I read called A Man of Three Worlds. Mm -hmm. Actually, and this happens to be a lot, given to me by my father-in-law more than 20 years ago. Yeah. When he said, somebody recommended this to me, but I think it's more your kind of book than mine. Yeah. He was right. Yeah. The Man of World chronicles uh, a figure known to history, not uh, celebrated or important, which, as you know, mm. interests me more sometimes. Sure. And Samuel Palash was his name. And he was uh, a Jewish man mm -hmm. who, for commercial business reasons, his family had been exiled from Spain, they were living in Morocco but he traded into Amsterdam. He took on identities as a Christian merchant and a Muslim merchant at different yeah. times. Spoke multiple languages, could pass for a man of different faiths, a man of three worlds. Mm -hmm. And that stimulated me because, as I think you know, I'm always interested in the liminal figures, the people who are transitional, the times of history that are transitional, one era ending, another one beginning. This, this uh, arouses me, Jonathan. I get yeah. engaged yeah. and stimulated yeah. by the uh, possibilities as a novelist yes. from people in times that are like that. And so that yeah. book, it probably what caused me to zero in on that uh, kind of figure in the time and place that I already had established as as an interest of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, is there anything that you would hope the reader would take away from this book? I mean, I think even if all you take from it is the the adventure, the characters, the interlocking parts of the piece, it is more than enough to reward anybody who reads it. I think it's a wonderful book. 
But is there anything particularly that when you when you finished it, you thought this is what this book does? I resist that, Jonathan, because by now, if I know anything about the creative process as it interfaces with those who buy, borrow, read a book, look at a work of art, listen to music. Yeah. It's a dialogue, not a monologue. Yes. So when I sit here now or do a book tour and I resist trying to say, this is what I'd like you to take away. Yeah. Resist narrowing the reader's own access to the book based on their own life, taste, sure. state of mind at the moment they're reading it, which will theirs. Yes. Uh, having said that, the, the, the caveat or the flip side is that sometimes an artist can be genuinely taken aback when mm -hmm. they see what someone has taken away from you. Yeah, yeah. And you end up saying, no, 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 that's not it at all. Well, you don't say it, but you think it. <laughs> uh, so generally, I try to avoid, I would like you to come away with this. Yeah. Mostly, I want people to come away, I think, with uh, complexity. Yes. Nuance that people and the world of the past, and then by extension, the world of today, are more subtle, complex, yeah. than we tend to, in a social media-driven world, allow our culture and other cultures to be. We tend to be driven by our society towards oversimplification. Mm. And I resist oversimplification as much as I can as a novelist. So I'm happy if people finish all the seas of the world with a bittersweet feeling, with a mixture yes. of happiness or joy, sorrow, anger, contemplativeness. I'm happy if all these things are in the mix for someone who has finished the book. Yeah. It is certainly a book that invites rereading, I think. And that certainly attracts me to, to, to reread it. I should probably say for people who have not encountered the book yet, and I recommend you do so, it, whilst it is related to uh, A Brightness Long Ago and other work, it fully stands alone. You don't need to have encountered those books in any way to appreciate this one. And I recommend you do so. We are here in what is called an advent calendar for, for this podcast, but let me ask you, as the year draws to a close, do you have a favorite holiday story or something that you read at this time of year that particularly calls to you? Jonathan Strawn, you actually think I have stories to tell? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go back. There's many options, yeah. but I don't want to I don't want to overstay my welcome. Uh, the first book I ever wrote, my never published 
see if I could write a novel book that I went to Crete yes. when I finished law school. Found a fishing village on the south coast of Crete, Agia Galini, which is very deeply entrenched in my heart from that winter. Mm -hmm. And on New Year's Eve in this fishing village, a number of us from all around the world, which is part of the, at the heart of the story for me. Yeah. Greeks, Germans, Canadians, Americans, British, Danes, Dutch, uh, went down to the rocky, pebbly beach. And a number of us during the day climbed the cliff behind the beach to plant torches yeah. in the cliff and lit them when the sun went down, when darkness came, and bonfires on the beach. And there was, for some reason, alcohol to be consumed for New Year's Eve. <laughs> and there was music. And we had a New Year's Eve celebration uh, on the beach under those torches set in the cliff with the bonfires on the rocks. And I was in the midst of writing my first book. Yeah. I was trying to redefine myself as someone who could write a novel. I was 24 that year. I just turned yeah. 24. And that New Year's Eve uh, feels talismanic in my memory mm -hmm. as uh, a celebration of the turning of the year at a time and in a place where I was trying to, if you will, turn myself towards something possible. I never actually expected it to result in the career and the life I've had, Jonathan, looking yeah. back now, uh, more than 40 years later. Yeah. Memory is intensely vivid. I can see the people I did that with, those of us who were planting the torches, those of us who were celebrating on the strand, and I could see myself that night at the turning, and it feels like a watershed moment for me when I look yeah. back. One of my most, perhaps the most memorable holiday season memory I've got. It's remarkable. As the days get longer, or shorter and colder, uh, and as the end of the as the holiday season approaches. Is there a Christmas cocktail or a holiday cocktail you turn to? Or is it whiskey all the time? The whiskey is never wrong. We can start with that, but it's not a cocktail. And Negronis are always right. But <laughs> I would be typecasting myself and for people who know me if I suggested a Negroni at this point. Mm. Uh, for festive, I like to make French 75s. Uh, French 75 is gin, lemon juice, a uh, little bit of simple sugar, simple syrup, and the best sparkling wine you have. If you've got actual champagne, you will be very good to your friends and acquaintances if you make a French 75 using that. Yeah. Uh, it's a tremendous cocktail with that 
festive association that Champagne has come to have for a long time now. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, is not in any way to suggest that you can't just open a bottle of Champagne and drink it. Of course. But you say cocktail. You did say yeah. cocktail. Yeah, so I did. 75 for me would be carrying the associations of the festive in a way that many of the others don't. So I would make you a French 75 if we were doing New Year's together this year. Well, with the image in mind that we are sitting happily drinking French 75s and enjoying conversation, I would like to thank you for making the time to talk to us today, Guy. It's been wonderful. Jonathan, it really was a pleasure. It always is. Thank you.